Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2, 11. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you now as we've read this passage of scripture. And we ask, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts. God, as we began this book last week and began to scratch the surface of the profound wisdom that is offered to us through it, God, we acknowledge today that we have so much still to learn. And we know from this passage and from this text that there are important lessons and things that you need to instruct us in today if we hope to become the people that you've called us to be. So Lord, please speak to us, minister to us through your word. We would ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, some of you will be familiar with the name Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a French, listen, get this, mathematician, physicist, inventor, theologian, and philosopher. That's like a lot of letters after your name on the wall there. Um, he lived in the 1600s, and he, he said this. This is very famous. A lot of people will quote this, but he said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. In other words, what Blaise Pascal is trying to say to us is that the pursuit of happiness is not just a great film starring Will Smith. 
The pursuit of happiness is a basic human motive. It's the driving force behind all that people do. So central to our nature is this pursuit of happiness that our own founders declared it to be an inalienable right and they enshrined it in our Declaration of Independence. Now as you come to the scriptures and you consider what the Bible says about this, the Bible would seem to support this idea that we are driven after happiness. The New Testament puts it this way in Ephesians 5, 29. No one ever hated his own flesh or his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it. In other words, all of us care about ourselves. All of us love ourselves. All of us are trying to do things that take care of ourselves. Or consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verse 4. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's saying, look, the, the, the basic thing is you're going to look out for number one. You're going to look out for your own interests. There's a place for that. But he's just saying, make sure you're not only doing that, you're also paying attention to, and as he'll go on, giving preference to the needs of the other people around you. Humans are constantly seeking happiness meaning, and satisfaction. And as we're going to see this morning, and we're going to continue to see in the book of Ecclesiastes, our problem is not necessarily that we're seeking happiness in life. It's that most often we as humans are looking for it in all of the wrong places. So Solomon has to come along and he has to take this thing to its logical conclusion and go out and pursue happiness and pleasure and satisfaction and meaning in every arena under the sun, so he can say, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, and kids, don't try this at home. That's going to be the message here in Ecclesiastes. Last week, Solomon, or perhaps an editor who added an introduction and conclusion to Solomon's work, showed us that if this life is all there is, if there's no afterlife, if there's no sovereign God ruling over the cosmos, then your life and my life, your work and my work, everything and everyone that you love and care about is ultimately meaningless. We're just going to be here. We're a blip on the radar screen. We don't impact or change the universe around us. We're here, we're gone, and we're long forgotten. That was last week's message. I titled that sermon, You Don't Matter. Some of you are like, see, honey, I told you we shouldn't have gone to church last week. As we pick up where we left off last week, it, it seems like Solomon now, after that introduction, is going to anticipate our counterarguments. What I mean by that is, last week again, the message was everything is hebel, the Hebrew word for vapor or smoke. This idea that everything under the sun, it's there for a moment, then it's gone. It looks like it has substance to it, but you can't even grab it. It's confusing. It's an enigma, life under the sun. And so now Solomon's going to, again, he's going to sort of anticipate our counter-arguments where we're going to sit back and go, wait, like, like everything, everything? Seriously, Solomon, like everything under the sun, everything about my life is hebel, it's meaningless? What about having fun? I mean, does, doesn't that do something for me? Doesn't that make life worthwhile if I'm out having fun? What about making lots of money? What about achieving some historic feat in my life? What about acquiring great wisdom and knowledge and being able to 
move humanity forward in the world? Isn't there something to be gained from these sorts of things? Well, these are the very kinds of things that Solomon is going to turn his attention to. And he's going to reign all over our parade. Solomon, from his own extensive and unique life experience, is going to be able to launch a head-on assault against the very things that we humans might be most tempted to pursue meaning and significance in. First up on the chopping block is wisdom. We read verses 12 through 18, but I want to reread them. Solomon says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my, my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. These verses are sort of Solomon's own introduction now to the book. He's going to tell us what kind of a quest he's on. And it's a quest to find out what life is all about. Now, in verse 12, Solomon is speaking in the first person, I, Solomon, or I, the preacher. Whereas last week we saw in verse 1 that it was in the third person, talking about the words of the preacher. And what this means is now Solomon is saying to all of his readers, here, why don't you come along with me? I want to invite you along with me into my journey so that my experience becomes your experience. In verse 13, he explains that he launched an extensive study into all that is done under heaven. Solomon left no book unopened, no page unturned. He explored every subject. He wanted to learn how the world works, and he tried to grasp what life is all about. Remember, the key question of the book, the key question of Solomon's journey was back in verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, his question is, when I think about all that I'm doing with my life, my relationships, my labor, every ounce of energy I'm expending in my earthly life, what do I actually gain from that? Is it worth it? Is there a payoff at the end of this thing? In other words, Solomon is busy trying to discover the meaning of life. Maybe you found yourself in a similar place. Asking yourself questions like, what is life all about? Or, or what, what's the meaning of my life? Well, if that's you, that's a great place to be in. That was Solomon's concern. He wanted to know the meaning of life. He wanted to know what happens after we die. He wanted to know how we should live our lives in the here and now. 
Now, the difference between Solomon asking these questions and you asking these questions is that Solomon had a pretty unfair advantage over us. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we read of this incredible story where after Solomon's father, King David, the great king of Israel, died, Solomon is this young man now thrust into power and the throne there in Israel, and God visits him in a dream, and God says to Solomon, ask what I shall give you. Could you imagine being asked that question by God? What would you like? Just ask me, what can I give to you? What do you want? I mean, when Aladdin rubbed the magical lamp and the genie appeared and gave him three wishes, he was like, make me a prince so I can marry the woman of my dreams. But forget about a genie. We're talking about the omnipotent God, the sovereign of the universe, coming to a man and saying, ask what shall I give to you? I wonder what you would ask for. If God came to you tonight in a dream and said, what do you want? Well, here's what Solomon asked for. He said, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? In other words, Solomon, although he could have asked for anything, what he asked for was wisdom. God, give me wisdom so that I can rule and govern this great people. The story goes on to say, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give to you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Amazing. God answers his request. God says, oh, you want wisdom? Okay, I can one-up that. I'll make you the wisest person to ever walk the planet. Outside of Jesus Christ, there has never been a wiser person than Solomon. The mind, the understanding, the discernment that God gave to this man is unparalleled. So Blaise Pascal had all those cool little fancy titles. Solomon's would have just kept going endlessly. In fact, in 1 Kings, he was like a master of botany and trees and plants and flowers. He was like a zoologist. I mean, he had so much wisdom. And it was this man with such a brilliant mind, such perception into the deep things of the universe, who we learn in this passage applied his heart. This was a man who hit the books, a man who really wanted to understand the big questions of life. But here's the tragedy that actually becomes a blessing. In all of his searching, he didn't find the answers to the questions he was asking. It wasn't through human wisdom. It wasn't going to be through his own resources. It wasn't going to be from reading the right book or pondering the right question, or having a really, really powerful study group. When he approached it that way, look what he found. The pursuit of wisdom proved to be a big disappointment. In verse 14, he found that it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man, literally the children of Adam. 
The language there recalls the curse in Genesis chapter 3 that falls on Adam and the world and all of Adam's descendants after sin enters the world. In other words, life in this world is difficult and it doesn't always make sense. So for any human to try to understand life on this side of the fall, that is an exercise in hebel. It's like smoke. It's like a vapor. The moment you think you can grasp the answers, they slip through your fingers. It's an exercise in futility. He says it's like chasing the wind. I mean, think about that picture of a human trying to run after and grab the wind. You can't get it. It's as ridiculous as a dog chasing its own tail. It goes around and around and around and around and it can't quite get its tail. And that's what we look like if we think we're going to have every answer given to us and every problem solved. Family, you you could read all of the philosophers in the history of the world You could read every self-help book that lined the shelves of bookstores. You could watch The View and Oprah every single day, and you will still not have life completely figured out. There's still going to be things that are mysterious. There are still going to be things that you can't quite get your head around. There are still going to be circumstances that come into your family, into your workplace, into your community that make you step back and scratch your head and go, how can this be? And if what you think you're going to find in this world is a nice, neat, tidy explanation for everything that happens to you, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to realize that that is as elusive as chasing the wind. In verse 15, he tells us why. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Family, on this side of the garden, on this side of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we live in a world that is crooked. We live in a world that is lacking Things are not the way they're supposed to be right now. Sin has distorted everything. And because of sin, we live again in a broken world. Things are not how they should be. The sickness of a loved one, the death of a child, the kid who cheats their way through school, the corrupt boss who somehow keeps making more and more and more money. And you just sit back and you go, how is this happening? And you will drive yourself mad trying to get an answer to it. The best we can do, as we're going to see in this book, is learn to live in light of those inconsistencies, trusting in a sovereign and good God who one day is going to make all that is currently wrong eternally right. So Solomon learned some hard lessons about the limits of human wisdom. For in much wisdom is much vexation, he says, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, from the time that many of us were young children, we had the message, education, 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 beat into our heads. And we were told that through great education, this would be your pathway to happiness. And this would empower you to be a person who could change the world and make it into a better place. And that's a half-truth. Education matters. But the problem is, it doesn't fix everything. And many of us have 
invested tons and tons of time and resources into getting more and more degrees that we can hang on our wall so that we can be happy and so that we can actually change the world. And Solomon is saying that line of thinking is as old as time itself. And when you go down that path and you think that that's where it's at, he's going to say, you're wrong. In fact, what most people find is that through the increase of knowledge is the increase of sorrow and vexation. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. You read one book to answer a question that you had about something and it introduces five new questions to you that you didn't even have before you read the book. And you go, this is, this is vexation. I can't get to the end of this. And for any of us who have been exposed to homelessness or human trafficking or ethnic cleansing and religious persecution or all of the other ills of the world that we live in, the more you realize this to actually be true. As you've increased in knowledge about how this world actually is, you found that you're increasing in sorrow at the same time. This world is broken. The more you learn, the more miserable sometimes you can become. That's why there's a hint of truth in the old cliche, ignorance is bliss. Now we're going to pick the topic of wisdom back up in a couple of minutes in chapter 2. So let's suspend our judgment about it because right now it sounds really, really negative. Um, and it's not going to end that way, that it's entirely pointless. We'll get back to it in a moment. But, but up to this point, here's what we can say about wisdom. Wisdom has its limits. It has its, its limits. It's, it's something that we can't make ultimate in our lives because you're never going to find answers to all of life's mysteries or all of life's questions not in a Genesis 3 world. Okay, so Solomon went down that road. Smarter than you, more thoughtful than you, had more free time to actually sit and think and write than you'll ever have. And he said, that's not it. So then he turns his attention to something else. After wisdom, it is now pleasure. Pleasure, we see this beginning in chapter 2. For every one person who has looked to wisdom and knowledge to find satisfaction and meaning, there are probably 10 people who have pursued pleasure to find those sorts of things. Now, we living in the land of plenty are particularly tempted in this way. We live in a society and in a culture that has literally turned pleasure into a God. If it feels good, it must be good. If you want to do it, you should do it. Just go for it. Just complete abandon just whatever you want you should have oh your spouse doesn't make you happy anymore well dump that spouse and go get another one that's the kind of culture we live in everyone is living for that next thrill that next experience that next thing that you think will give you an ounce of pleasure so you take up new hobbies I'm going to get into road biking and you do that for six months and then I need to sell the road bike and get a stand-up paddle board and then you do that and and it's on, well, we need, to, we need better vacations. Let's travel. Let's do Europe next year. And you do that and you go, it was kind of cold in Europe. We should go somewhere hot. Let's go to the Caribbean. And you do that and we're just going, 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 going. Where's it at? Where is the satisfaction? And we're chasing it and chasing it and chasing it. Well, Solomon took that road and he traveled it as far as you can. He puts it this way in verse 10 of chapter 2. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. 
Solomon said, look, if I want it, I'm going to have it. If it looks fun, I'll do it. I'm going to go for anything that my heart wants, anything that promises an ounce of pleasure, I'm going to go for it. Now, maybe you've lived like that before. Maybe there was a season in your life where you just lived with reckless abandon. You just, whatever I want, I'm going to go do. If it feels good, I'm going for it. Maybe you're living that way right now. Maybe that's, that's the, the thing that's governing your decision making. I just want more. I want pleasure. I want fun. I want something that makes me feel good. Maybe you're out testing the waters. Well, Solomon didn't just test the waters. Solomon plunged the depths of the waters. What we're going to see here in chapter 2 is that <clears throat> whatever pleasure you're pursuing in your life, it's like, it's like playing in the kiddie pool while Solomon is over swimming in the Pacific Ocean. Okay, we're, just, we're in the kiddie pool. You, you can't do it like Solomon did, as you're going to see here. So if you think that, that maybe Solomon just doesn't get it, you're going to be sorely wrong. He gets it. He's going as far as you can in this direction. Now, he went all in because this was a test for Solomon. This was an experiment for Solomon. In verse 3, he says that, that what he was doing when he chased pleasure to the fullest as he said that he was doing it to see if that's where it's at until he might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In other words, he's saying, look, this is, this is me trying again to answer the key question of the book. Like, what's the point of all of this? If wisdom doesn't deliver, maybe it's about pleasure. Maybe that's all we can kind of milk out of this life. It's a little bit of fun here and there. Or maybe if you really have everything you want, then maybe your life matters to you. Maybe it'll be satisfying. Maybe it'll fulfill you. That's what he thinks. Now, sometimes people read this section and they think, okay, this is like a totally, um, uh, just like ignorant dive into hedonism that Solomon's got going on here. Like he's lost his mind, he's checked out, and he's just trying to be like this, this playboy that's just living this crazy life. But Solomon twice in this passage reminds us that, that even though he's on this pursuit of what seems to us to be like absurd pleasure, that he was guided by wisdom the whole time. He, he says that in verse 3 and he says it again in verse 9. So the reason he says that is because he wants you and me to, to know that he's not operating in ignorance here. That this is a controlled experiment, if you will. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 1, there's the word test. Come now, I will test you. Uh, that word can be translated experiment. This is like a controlled experiment. Okay, he's, he knows what he's doing. Every decision he's making is calculated. It's intentional. It's deliberate. And he's looking at all the world has to offer that seems to satisfy the sons of man. And he's saying, I'm going to have a little bit of all of that and see if it pays off. See if this is the best way to live on this rock we call earth. And here's his conclusion. But behold, this also was vanity, hebel, smoke, vapor, meaningless. It didn't deliver. When it was all said and done, it proved to be an empty and meaningless pursuit. The pleasures never lasted. The pleasures never satisfied. And they never will. Maybe you feel tempted this morning to 
question Solomon's conclusion. Maybe you're sitting here and going, well, maybe he just didn't look in the right places. Like, like what did, what did this, this Solomon guy, Mr. Wisdom, what did he go pursue? Uh, the answer is everything. Like everything you could think you could want that could satisfy you, Solomon did that. And he went to the extreme. Verse 2 of chapter 2 refers to comedy or parties. Verse 3 refers to alcohol. Solomon was throwing parties every single night for lots and lots of people. And he, a lot of commentators think uh, he, he had comedians there. So he had like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle there like every night just entertaining his guests as they feasted and as they had like vats full of wine so people could drink all that their hearts desired. And he had these feasts going on night after night after night. Down later in uh, verse 8, he talks about getting singers. So like he's not just turning on iTunes here and playing it through his speakers at his fancy palace. He buys the band. He's like, hey, they're the best in the world. They're going to come play nightly at the palace. And he's having these incredible parties. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we read about his daily provisions for these parties. Check this out. 1 Kings 4, 22 through 23. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Now, you all know what a core is, right? Like, do you even study, bro? Okay, I didn't know either, but I looked it up because that's my job, not yours. So here's what a core is. When he says they had 30 cores of flour, that's like 1,740 gallons of flour that they had set aside to make all of their pastries. 60 cores of meal would be like 3,480 gallons of meal. That's a lot of oatmeal for the morning after. Scholars tell us that this was enough food to feed thousands of people every single night. He's throwing parties with thousands of his friends over at the palace and they're feasting. So like whatever party you've thrown or been to, as you can remember, like, that was the best party we ever had. Our wedding, it was, like, over the top. We had our favorite 150 people there. We spared no expense. Like, your party was lame, I'm sorry to say it, in comparison to what this guy's party looked like. Spared no expense. But you know what? Doing that night after night after night, we're going to see, got really old. Well, I'm not the party type, Daniel. In verses 4 through 6, he's going to start listing off some accomplishments. Most of us are accomplishment types. I want to achieve something. I want to do something significant. Well, Solomon went there. It tells us about the great things that he did. He said, I made great works. Now, the Bible tells us that Solomon spent a fortune constructing his own home. Uh, we live in a city that has some of the most incredible homes in the world. Uh, some of these, these houses here that go for 30, 40, 50 million dollars in Santa Barbara, are some of the most incredible in the world. Solomon, according to the scriptures, spent over a decade, I think 13 years, constructing his own palace. 13 years with the best artisans and architects and engineers working on his property to get it the way that he wanted. Everything he dreamed of having on his property, he had. 
I remember as a kid going to Hearst Castle numerous times up in San Simeon up the coast. And you go up in a bus to the top where he built a castle. It was actually, I think, his like third one. He like did one and was like, kind of had the Solomon syndrome. Like, well, okay, this is cool, but I could do better. And so then he does number two. And then he's like, I could do still better, I think. I can make a castle because castles are really cool in the 1920s. And so he decides to do this castle thing. And now he's got three houses up there that are amazing. And when I was on this tour as a kid, you stand there and they're like, here are his pools. Here are his mansions. Here are all these European tapestries that he imported. Here is the zoo that he had back before zoos were like a thing. He had his own private zoo. And they said, look in every direction. You'd look and you'd see stretches of California coast, pristine California coast. You'd see hills in the other direction. They said, everything your eyes can see belonged to Mr. Hurst. And I remember my jaw just dropping. Okay, Solomon was that times 10. Like, get in the car and drive for three hours and you're still on Solomon's property. The guy ruled a powerful, prosperous kingdom and he was just building it up. The Bible says he built many other great buildings, including homes for his wives, which as you'll see in a moment, is like a massive subdivision of homes fit for queens. The crown jewel of all of it was the amazing, magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Verses 7 through 8 refers to his possessions and his power. He had a massive fleet of servants and slaves who managed all of his wealth, managed all of his property. Solomon was able to sit back with his feet up and live a life of ease. People making him breakfast, helping him out of bed, giving him massages, pedicures, manicures, whatever he wanted. He had people to take care of everything, to manage all of his property. It tells us he had unending supplies of animals and food. He had other kingdoms that neighbored him who were paying him tribute and supplying all the resources that he needed to keep the amazing empire going. Like I said, he had live entertainment and singers every night. And listen, he had a thousand different women to satisfy his sexual desires. So if you're thinking... Well, maybe he just didn't look in the right places. Well, maybe he didn't try what I'm thinking about trying. Friend, you're wrong. He did it all. He did it all. Every fantasy he could dream up, every new project he could think about, he went out and he actually did it. Solomon had more privilege, power, resources, ability than you can dream of than any of us will ever have. And here's what he says in verses 10 and 11. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now I want you to notice something. This is really important. Solomon does not deny that he did experience pleasure in all of this. He says right there in verse 10 that he found some pleasure in all that he had done. And sometimes as Christians, we, we make the mistake of 
trying to deny that there's any fun to be had like outside of a Bible study. If you're not praying, you're not singing, you're not reading, you're not having fun. And when we talk like that, we look very ignorant and naive. And the Bible doesn't talk that way. Solomon's saying, look, look, there was pleasure. My heart found some pleasure in all the things that I was doing. But then he tells you that that little pleasure that he had, that's the reward. That's all you get is that fleeting pleasure that leaves your heart aching for more and more. And in light of that, Solomon's going to say, because of that, at the end of the day, when I zoom out and I try to look at this from a macro perspective, it is all hebel. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless because I can't think of another thing that is going to get me over the hump and give me the desires of my heart and satisfy me. It doesn't work that way. So what is the point? And he gets to this point in his life where he's just exhausted of trying to have fun. There was pleasure to be had, but it was short-lived. I don't know if you've ever bought a new car. I've bought a couple in my life. Not at the same time, but throughout my life so far. I've bought a couple. Although if I had bought a couple at the same time, what I'm about to say would not change. Okay, if you've ever bought a new car, it is like so exciting to get into your car and do the mundane commute that you normally do. You're like pumped. You're like, my car's awesome right now and it smells great and it drives great and it looks great when you get out of the car. And like you're, you're so excited about it, you, you even get pleasure out of washing your car. That's how like pumped you are about the new car. But guess what? After about six months, it kind of wears off, right? You're kind of not thinking about it all the time. You kind of don't want to wash the car. You kind of really don't want to do the commute to work anymore because the payoff, the reward of the, the new thing, the exciting thing goes away. This is what economists call hedonic adaptation. What they mean by that is you get used to it. You get used to it. Human beings have an ability to just get used to whatever that thing is, whatever you wanted, whatever you desired. The house, the relationship, the car, the clothes, the gadgets, whatever it is, you get used to it. And the thrill that you initially got just wears off. And so, the pursuit of pleasure will never fulfill. Emma Sapala is a leading expert on health psychology, on well-being, and resilience at Stanford University. She wrote in her book, The Happiness Track. So this is coming from a secular perspective. Here's what she says. We have the illusion, keyword, that the success, fame, money, fill in the blank that we are chasing will bring us some kind of lasting fulfillment, but it doesn't. So as a psychologist at Stanford, she evaluates people and their happiness. That's her expertise. And what she's finding is she's looking at person after person after person is you think you're going to be satisfied from the thing and you're not. And the people are not happy. They're not fulfilled. Moral of the story, earthly pleasure is an elusive thing like grasping at the wind. It leaves you wanting more and it never changes. Now for the younger crowd here today, it's especially easy to think that pleasure can satisfy you. The reason is simply that there's so many things in life that you really still desire to do that you haven't gotten to yet. And, and so it's easy to be tempted to think if you're not married, like when I get there, then I'm going to be happy. Or if you don't have a job, you don't make money yet, 
and you're depending on mom and dad right now, it's like, well, when I've got my own resources, man, that's when it's really gonna, it's gonna happen for me. Or when we have kids, then I'm gonna be satisfied. And it's easy to think that way when you're young. But the interesting thing is that if you just stop and you look at the Solomons of our own world, they seem to prove exactly what Solomon is saying, that having it all does not fill the hole in your heart. In fact, Grammy-nominated singer Halsey assures us in her song, You Should Be Sad, that you can't fill the hole inside of you with money, drugs, and cars. Perhaps she's speaking from experience. We, we don't know. Or consider the words of Angelina Jolie. Here's a woman who is a, a standard of success and beauty in our culture. She made this statement. She said, I remember one of the most upsetting times in my life was after I had attained success, financial stability, and I was in love, and I thought I have everything that they say you should have to be happy, and I'm not happy, end quote. Crazy. You can have it all and still feel like you've got nothing. Like wisdom, pleasure has limited usefulness. Okay, if living foolishly isn't the answer, maybe it's living rightly. We see here a return to wisdom in verses 12 through 17. Solomon went and did that thing, realized it wasn't there. So he comes back to wisdom again. And here's what he concludes in verse 13. He says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. In other words, Solomon comes back to wisdom and he says, Look, there is gain in living wisely. There is advantage in the same way that there's an advantage to walking in the light rather than stumbling around in the darkness. It has a relative advantage. It generally does lead to a better life now if you make wise decisions. So it's generally a better way to live, but its advantage doesn't last. What Solomon says here is that the same event is going to happen to wise people and foolish people. Look at verse 15, he said, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Here's what Solomon says. Yes, there is relative advantage to living wisely. So if anybody thinks the book of Ecclesiastes is a license to go live like an idiot, you're wrong. You're missing parts of the book here. That's not his argument. There is an advantage to living wisely. But when he again zooms out to the macro perspective and he says, does it really matter though? Like, is it really gaining me anything in the long run, the eternal run? His answer is no, because whether you live wisely or you live foolishly, you're still going to die. And so 5,000 years from now, again, if this is all there is, is life under the sun, then it actually doesn't matter at all in any meaningful sense how you live your life. You're still dead, and you're still long forgotten. And so wisdom is good, but it only has a relative advantage. We need more than wisdom. We need a Savior. 
The final thing he looks at is work, and then we're going to conclude, verses 18 through 23. He says, So I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So for some of us we think, well, well, certainly work gives my life meaning and satisfaction. I'm doing important things with my life right now. A lot of us feel that way. That's why so many people struggle to retire. It's like they've attached so much meaning and identity and value to their work. They can't, they can't function and, and feel like there's any meaning beyond the workplace. But Solomon is saying, no, this isn't where it's at because death is going to come to all of us and everything that you worked so hard for in your life and all of the additional stress that you incurred to really make it great in your profession, to really succeed, that kept you up at night, that when other people just... Uh, weren't, weren't working as hard as you and seemed to have a little bit more joy in their life, but you, you were working so hard. He's saying at the end of the day, you're going to die and all your stuff goes to somebody else and none of it's really going to matter. And even worse, Solomon has this almost permonition of the future where he's saying, okay, hold on, I've done great things. I've made a fortune. I've done so much. What if the guy who gets all my stuff, i.e. my son, is a fool and he loses it all? He didn't have to work for it and he got it and then he lost it all and he's going, I just can't even take it. And you know what? It's exactly what happened. His son Rehoboam, we read about, this is, this is his son, not his grandkids, not his great grandkids, his son has, this, has the kingdom split in half. He loses his dad's kingdom. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, that a foreign army comes into Jerusalem on Rehoboam's watch Okay, this is like sinking dad's company here. They, they come in this army and they go in and they steal all of Solomon's wealth and possessions. His dad had made these like 300 really cool gold shields and like put them away. They stole all those. So Rehoboam's like, well, what's the best I can do? He replaces them with bronze ones. It's like his little tribute, like, sorry, dad, my bad. Lost everything. Even work is hebel when you stop and think about it. Work is difficult, stressful, challenging. Of course, you can find joy in it, and we're going to see in a second you should. But even when you succeed, everything is left when you die to people who did not work for it and will likely lose it. What a great corrective for our culture. An American culture that is consumed by work. Workaholism is a thing. It is a massive issue. We don't know how to turn it off. We don't stop We check our emails all night long. We lay in our bed and it's ding, ding, ding. We're working on the weekends. We're working on our vacations. We're just not even taking them. We're working, working, working. And it is a trap. To quote Emma Sapala again, 
psychologist at Stanford, she says, you might think that if you work like a maniac, you'll get a sought-after promotion with a big raise, which will ease your financial anxieties at home. And once that anxiety is gone, well, you'll finally be happy. But there are major problems with constantly trying to get things done and focusing on the next thing. Doing so ironically prevents you from being as successful as you want to be and wreaks havoc on body and mind. From the outside, we may look like we have it all, but on the inside, we are burned out, not performing to our highest level, and feeling miserable both emotionally and physically while our relationships suffer, end quote. Probably describes so many successful people all around us. It's a depressing book, huh? We're like two weeks in and people are like, man, I'm done. I'm not going to work anymore. I'm done. I'm over it. So like, how do we move forward? What's the solution to this? I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit long. I'll wrap it up here. Verses 24 through 26. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of Look who makes an entrance, God. This is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What's the solution to the empty pursuits of life? Here it is, church. Rather than placing my hope in wisdom, pleasure, work, any other thing under the sun, I need to place my hope in God. I need to understand that he and he alone is the source of meaning, significance, and satisfaction in life. And when you get that, here's the cool thing. Once you've got that box checked, and you're delighting in the Lord, you can finally, and maybe for the first time, receive all the other things we're talking about for what they actually are. They're just gifts given to you from the giver, i.e. God. And all of a sudden, they can become sources of joy and enjoyment in your life. He says in verse 26 that it is God who has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. The person who's really going to have joy that's really going to find satisfaction in life and he's going to have the wisdom to see what life is and what it's not and what it can deliver and what it cannot that person is only going to get there because God gives it to them we need a breakthrough into our thinking from almighty God and this is what Jesus has promised to us Jesus promises us in the gospel life and life in an abundance Jesus is through his death offering to you forgiveness of your sins, removal of your guilt, peace with God. And through his resurrection, Jesus is offering you new life, a life that is filled with hope and meaning and love and joy, life as it was meant to be lived. I find it interesting how radically simple Solomon's solution is. Eat and drink. Find joy in your toil. It's such a contrast from like this flurry of activity and pursuit that we've seen up to this point. He says, just enjoy the simple blessings of life. Good food, good drink, and in the future in this book, we're going to see time with those that you love. So what have we learned here today? 
What we've learned is that the problem at the end of the day is not wisdom or God-honoring pleasures or your job. The problem is if we try to make any of those things ultimate things, if we think we're going to get true meaning or true satisfaction out of those things, we're going to be disappointed. I titled this sermon, Never Enough, from the song on The Greatest Showman. And here's the line in it. It says, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough. Now she's singing that song thinking that the man that she's into is going to be the solution. It's going to deliver. Solomon's going to rock that. But, um, but the point is there. She's like, even if I had everything, the whole world, it's, it's not enough. That's what Solomon is trying to say. And this is the wisdom of Solomon for us this morning. Don't look to these things. Look to God. Look to God to satisfy your life, to give meaning to your life. And when we get that right, we get off the treadmill of performance and accomplishments and pleasure seeking and all of that. And we're able to enjoy the good things that God has given us because our ultimate joy is not tied to things. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now with hearts that are oftentimes in need of correction. Like children who need to be disciplined and who need to be reminded what is right. And Lord, we thank you that in your word you constantly guide us into the truth. That in your word you desire, us to, you desire to lead us away from the many pitfalls that we're often so tempted to fall into. And you're so gracious as to lead us into the truth and onto the path of truth. Lord, this morning we have once again been reminded that what we're actually looking for is the life that is to be had in you, eternal life, union with Christ, relationship with God. And Lord, we pray that for each of us, we would be like the woman at the well who when she met Jesus and learned about a a water that he offered that would satisfy her to where she would never have to drink again. That her heart's desire was, well, give me this water so that I may drink of it. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you once again this morning by faith, drinking from the fountain of living water so that our souls will never thirst again. Lord, please satisfy us this week, this month, this year. Help us to come to you daily and commune with you and find that our hearts are delighting in your presence. And Lord, help us to enjoy the many good blessings that you give to us. Not to deny that there's pleasure to be had in a great meal or great company or even the beautiful creation around us, but to enjoy them for what they are. They're good gifts given to us from a perfect God. And we pray that as we enjoy the simple things in life, that in our hearts we would find deep and profound gratitude, redounding to you for your kindness toward us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, let's stand to our feet, stretch our legs a little bit, but more importantly, let's sing praise to the Lord because he's worthy. Amen.